This is a recording of the debate Democracy Under Siege from the Battle of Ideas Festival on the 14th of October 2018 at the Barbican in London. The session was produced in partnership with Time to Talk and is introduced by the chair, Claire Fox. Welcome to Democracy Under Siege. The issue of democracy is an incredibly important and core discussion for us and feels very urgent and necessary at the moment. Our partners on this particular session are Time to Talk, who are an international or European debate organisation, and in fact they're live streaming this event. And Time to Talk is made up of people from all around Europe, organisations that sit around and talk and debate and, and discuss, and we at the Academy of Ideas are one of those and proud to be. But for all of the people from countries such as uh, Hungary and Poland, places all around Europe where the issues of democracy are at the forefront, this is a very important, urgent issue. It's not some abstract uh, sort of schools debate, is democracy good or bad, and so on. Now, obviously, the debate is informed in the UK a little by the Brexit discussion, and also, in fact, more internationally by what's happened in relation to the election of Donald Trump. These were democratic decisions, but they have sent shockwaves uh, through the political uh, establishment in, in both instances. And it's given people pause for thought about whether democracy can be trusted in some ways. There's even discussions about whether voters should be sent on training courses in how to use their democratic vote correctly, because it's felt that sometimes they can't be trusted and so on. The kind of dilemma for me is summed up in the fact that nobody is explicitly anti-democracy. So if you look at the people who are arguing, for example, for the people's vote, they see themselves as the Democrats. And then the people who say, no, we don't agree with the people's vote, we have already had a people's vote, they see themselves as the Democrats. Now, this session is not about Brexit, but it's about the issues that have emerged in a discussion on Brexit. And actually, I was inspired to have this particular panel as much as anything because of the Economist's uh, manifesto on liberalism, and which is a really fine document. I think it's going to be referred to a little. But in it, there's a concession that's important. It says, Europe and America are in the throes of a popular rebellion against liberal elites who are seen as self-serving. Liberal democracy faces a looming challenge. And that's really what we wanted to talk about, rather than getting stuck on the kind of the minutiae of it, to really think about what that means. I'm really uh, delighted to introduce my panel. The first person we'll hear um, from is Steve Richards, who is one of the UK's leading uh, uh, broadcasters and political commentators, award-winning in all sorts of ways, F fabulous CV if you look at it online. Uh, he's a regular on the BBC and on Sky, presenter of Radio 4's Week in Westminster, author of The Rise of the Outsiders, and he's also preparing a major BBC4 series, The Road to Brexit. And I think people who, who've worked with Steve, but also people who've read his work, will know that he's one of the most uh, thoughtful political commentators around at the moment. And I think that we are not always well served uh, by political commentators, so I'm delighted to have one of the ones I most respect. So can we give Steve a warm welcome, please? <laughs> 
We're then going to hear from Daniel Moylan, who's a Battle of Ideas regular over the years. He's a former Deputy Chair of the Transport for London and worked closely with Boris Johnson when Boris was Mayor. He's a co-chair of Urban Design London. He's an elder statesman of the London government politics and a vigorous campaigner for Brexit. He's, in my view, one of the most clear thinking of the Brexiteers, a radical uh, Democrat. I've labelled him that. I don't think he, I don't even know. But I consider him to be uh, somebody who has really been out. thinking about this issue. He's always a troublemaker. He gets on everyone's nerves, which is why we're delighted to welcome him, uh, Daniel Moylan. <laughs> Uh, Zani uh, uh, Minton Beddoes is the editor in chief at The Economist and has been since 2015. Was formerly the business affairs editor and was the economics editor as well, based in Washington. <coughs> Before working at The Economist, was at the IMF, was an advisor to a minister of finance in Poland, and many other things. She recently took on Steve Bannon at the Open Future Festival, which marked The Economist's 175th anniversary. I think that. The idea of the whole Open Future initiative was to remake the case for liberal values in the 21st century by engaging in a global conversation about our worldview with our uh, supporters and, crucially, with our critics. And I think that that uh, shows exactly the kind of spirit that we try and engender at the Battle of Ideas, to have open discussion. And when they came under an enormous stick for having got Steve Bannon there as Zenny just held the line, and it's, uh, uh, therefore I'm delighted that she's here. Can we give her a warm welcome? Uh, last uh, but not least is Bruno Waterfield. People will, over the years, if you've been to the festival before, have heard uh, Bruno speak. He's uh, the Brussels correspondent for The Times. He's been on the front line of the rouse over democracy uh, precisely for that reason and has been reporting on Europe, European affairs for 15 years. First from Westminster and then from Brussels. He was at the Daily Telegraph till 2015. He's a frequent contributor to Spiked as well, author of No Means No. He's one of the journalists and thinkers and public intellectuals who I most admire and I always want to get him to speak, so I'm delighted to have him here. Can we give him a warm welcome? <laughs> Okay, Steve, if I can ask you to share your thoughts, please. We all probably agree in this room that democracy is under various forms of threat. I have a specific concern, and it's not about the rise of social media. I think on the whole that's been a good thing. It's not necessarily about the rise of populism, in inverted commas. It's about this. The juxtaposition between these two terms the elite versus the anti-elite is the most dangerous, uh, corrosive juxtaposition I've come across in British politics. It's used all the time to the point where ubiquity has made it less dangerous and potent than it really is. Because if you step back from those uh, terms, the elite and the anti-elite, what we are really saying across Western democracies is this. We elect people to a national parliament and then they become separate from us. They become corrupt, indifferent uh, to the people. 
and those who have the heroic task of saving us from the elite are those who have had nothing to do with democratic politics. People who enter the democratic arena become contaminated. And so we have the dangerous and bonkers situation, unique in politics, that not to have anything to do with democratic politics is qualification for power. In other words, Trump, I had nothing to do with Washington. I was a celebrity. I was a business person. Get him in. Uh, Farage, never been an MP at Westminster. He is treated in some circles like a god because he hasn't been an MP contaminated by democracy. In this Barbican Centre, if someone came into the Royal Shakespeare Company and said, look, could I do Hamlet, please, to the director? And the director said, well, have you played Hamlet before? I said, no, I've never been an actor. You wouldn't get the part of Hamlet. But if you want to be President of the United States or Prime Minister to come in and say, I've had no experience whatsoever of democratic politics, in you go. You're fantastic. It is wholly perverse. And the reason this has come about is complicated and multi-layered. But I'm not worried about Twitter. I blame partly, partly the mainstream media. And I'll give you one example from this book, The Rise of the Outsiders, a quote from the head of uh, news at Sky News, John Riley, and it sounds really innocent. And you'll have heard many people at the BBC say something similar. He started a new Sunday show with Sophie Ridge. And in promoting the show, he said this. This will not be a show that reports from the Westminster bubble, but will be investigating how decisions made by the political elite affect the public and their lives. Now, it sounds not only innocent, it sounds heroic. You know, this program was going to leave this cocooned world, take it out to the people. But actually, he was framing the argument that is so dangerous without realizing he was even doing it. He was implying there is, and perhaps many of you think there is, but I don't, for reasons I'll quickly explain. There is this cocoon bubble at Westminster, the same in Washington, the same in Berlin, the same in Paris, where there is an elite taking decisions where they have no interest or awareness of the consequences in the real world. And he was going to sort that out by taking Sophie Ridge out into the real world. Incidentally, something that TV can't do anyway because it just becomes a vox pop of wholly unrepresentative voices. Now, that is really dangerous. And it's not true. There is a massive problem with our politics, but it's not an elite cocooned from the real world. When you think about it, it would be wholly perverse if that were the case. You get elected and then have no interest whatsoever as to what your voters are thinking um, because uh, you've arrived and you've got nowhere else you need to go. It's the exact opposite. There will be another election in three or four years' time. MPs go back to their constituencies most weekends, some of them every weekend. But they're closer to their constituencies now than in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, so it's just not true. You could disagree with the conclusions they reach, 
But one of the problems with the new Labour era was not that they were elitist and out of touch, they were too in touch. They were paralysed by fear reading focus groups, hearing what constituencies are saying, getting opinion polls on an hourly basis, and Blair, who appeared, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, then, then they'd read the Sun newspapers and all the rest of it. And so it was never about that. It was about something else, and this is where politicians are culpable. They believed in things that had become outdated. It wasn't that they were indifferent to voters, and this is where that brilliant economist edition comes in. They were all, or most of them, attached to a form of kind of economic liberalism that was being challenged in front of our eyes, but they didn't dare see it. They didn't dare see it, not because they're indifferent to what people think, but they had been conditioned by the 80s and the Thatcher, Reagan, era which uh, uh, intoxicated the Tory party and terrified parts of the Labour Party. The same in America with the Democrats um, and Reaganism. The same to some extent in Germany with the Social Democrats feeling they had to move to the right to get back in. And so the choice narrowed to the point where out there voters did feel uh, left behind and without control losing the levers of control. Because what do you do if, say, you live in Sunderland, you suddenly find no buses are arriving, but you can't afford a car? Who do you turn to? They felt out of control. It was nothing to do with the European Union that they felt left behind and out of control. It was about economic policy uh, and all these other factors that I hint at when I say buses suddenly disappeared, trains didn't turn up. The sudden fascination with direct democracy that prime ministers have when they're in trouble and think a referendum will get them out um, is clearly not part of the solution to the crisis in democracy. It makes it much, much worse. Uh, the, the utterly simplistic referendum last time in Britain was a disaster. And if Brexit has to be stopped, I'll say this in controversial ending in 20 seconds, I was, I was a fan of the second referendum. I now think it would be too chaotic and drawn out and cause more crises. If it's going to be stopped, it has to be stopped in the House of Commons because representative democracy is actually quite effective. And when we bypass it with these referendums, we don't help democracy, we make things much worse. Thank you very much. Uh, great start, Steve. Lots to argue about and think about there, and a really interesting approach. So, Daniel, please. Your... Uh, this is the weekend to be debating democracy, because this is the week when we shall likely find out if it still exists in our country. Two years ago, 52% of the electors voted to leave the European Union. 48% voted to remain. What nobody, absolutely nobody voted for is the travesty of a future relationship currently proposed by the government. And if you're not angry about that, you have come to the wrong debate. And if you say that it shows that the British people are too stupid to be allowed, or that direct democracy is inappropriate, too stupid to be allowed to have a direct say on matters of constitutional significance, I think you should be ashamed, because there is no democracy worth discussing without adult universal suffrage. And there is nothing that the Swiss or the Californians and other countries with similar systems can do that the British people cannot be trusted with. 
And if you want to bracket Trump and Brexit and the rise of the alt-right into one intellectually lazy holdall called populism, uh, you should apologize, because they have nothing in common in their motivation. They're only united because they constitute a sensible and judicious rejection of a governing class that has offered no choice. Now, we have the editor of The Economist here, who's recently produced a valiant defense of liberalism. And liberalism is as good a way as any of getting a grip on why we're in this mess. I've read that heartfelt essay, and the flaw at the center of it is that its authors, or author, cannot decide if liberalism is a point of view to be argued for in the democratic forum in competition with other ideas, like the alt-right, or a system, an order, an, a rules-based order that frames our way of life, with which, of course, therefore, there can be no arguing apart from revolutionary insurgency. And while lip service is paid to the former, what is envisaged is clearly the latter. The failure of liberalism is the abandonment of argument and the adoption of imposition. At its most exuberant, this led to the assimilation of the neocon version of liberalism and the view that democracy could and should be imposed by military means, the extravagant support for which by The Economist in 2003 was the reason, I have to say, Zanny, why I cancelled my subscription after many years and have never bought a copy since. Now, in our own less tempestuous societies, the use of force has not been called for. Instead, the removal of democratic choice from the people has proceeded piecemeal by stealth. And we'll take a few examples. As Steve has mentioned, the policy merger between New Labour and the Conservatives over a 20-year period. The transfer of decision-making away from democratically accountable people to independent authorities, be it the Bank of England, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Parole Board, all independent only in the sense that they are accountable to no one and therefore offer no recourse for those with a grievance. Uh, the closing down of wide areas of debate by political correctness. Uh, and of course the EU, that imperialist body designed by its founders to be as immune to democratic control as could be decently contrived, but to which access can be bought by any company with the money to pay the lobbyists and which, in relation to the world outside, is one of the most managerial and anti-competitive polities around, apart from China. All these steps were taken in pursuit of liberal values, and all of them are now a busted flush. And I say that with considerable regret, because I'm not a liberal, I'm a Tory, but a Tory with many liberal inclinations. And liberalism has made a hash of it. And now we're going to make an even bigger hash of it, if the government does not deliver the Brexit that people voted for, on a prospectus clearly set out at the time by a supposedly neutral government of leaving the EU, the single market, and the customs union, then the shocked confidence in the governing class and the democratic system will be irreparable. And the consequences will be unpredictable. Why should an MP opposed to independence in Scotland feel obliged to vote for it merely because it has been supported in a referendum? Think of that, Nicola Sturgeon, because it'll be a bed you made. There is some cause for hope. Parliament is palpably back at the heart of our political life. The choice between the parties has opened up and may open up further 
if they find the strain of Brexit added to the customary distinction between left and right leads to their breakup. Uh, the governing class, while still not listening to the voters, are at least chary of them. We can get this right, and we can successfully argue for the liberal and Tory policies we might unite in thinking work best, provided we no longer seek to impose them by removing choice. But first, we have to get this week and the coming months right. Democracy is really in peril. Whatever we do, the repercussions for democracy will resound through Europe and many other parts of the world, including countries in Asia and Africa that have inherited their democracy from us. As T.S. Eliot, who was a Tory, wrote in Little Gidding, history is now and England. Thank you, that was brilliant, Daniel. Uh, certainly a provocation, lots to think about there and lots to try and pull apart afterwards. But, um, Zanny. Thank you, Claire. Um, so, first of all, I'm going to resist the temptation to react to the provocation straight away, but say that, Claire, I'm going to try and answer your question, which was, is democ liberal democracy under siege? And my answer would be, yes, it is, in three ways. Uh, and the first, Steve has laid out very well, so I won't dwell on, but I think there is a frustration in established political institutions, in established political parties. We're in an era of anger, and you, regardless of what that anger came from, it is the anger that was manifested in the election of Donald Trump. It's the anger that is manifested here now. It's the anger that is manifested in the decline of uh, established parties throughout continental Europe. So that's kind of uh, a bit of evidence number one. But there are two other bits that I think are much more worrying. The second is we are entering the era of the strongman. And we're entering an era where, in lots of countries, institutions that uphold the rule of law are being rolled back, particularly a free judiciary and particularly an independent judiciary and a free press. And you just need to look at what's happening in Hungary and Poland. That is not, that's qualitatively different than anything that's happening in this country, but it is the erosion of the institution of liberal democracy. In Turkey and Russia, they've gone. Um, around the world, Brazil is about to elect a man uh, who is a far-right person who basically doesn't believe in democracy to be its next president. So we see this broadly around the world. And then the third, and I think this is important to remember too, the rising power of the 21st century is a dictatorship that is becoming more dictatorial as it gets more powerful. We're in a world where China is soon to be the world's biggest economy. It's going to be the driving power of the 21st century, and it is becoming more, not less, illiberal. So, so I think for all of those reasons, we have a problem that goes well beyond the problems of what drove Brexit and whether, what, whether you know, representative democracy is the right way forward. We have a really big challenge. Why is this happening? I think the second point I want to make is that the assumption uh, that liberal democracy is a concept where the two things, liberalism and democracy, are joined at the hip is actually a wrong assumption. And it's worth remembering that back in the 19th century, the classic British liberals, John Stuart Mill and Co, were very, very, very worried about the universal franchise because they thought it would mean the tyranny of the majority. So basically, the tyranny of, of popular democracy is something that really worried them. That's why we developed representative democracy. And that's, it's important, I think, to separate those two concepts. So liberalism, just for the, for the record, I think is a commitment to uh, a universal commitment to civic respect, to individual rights, a skepticism of power, particularly concentrated power, and a faith in progress, particularly brought through limited government and free markets. And liberals recognize the inescapability of conflict in society, and they think that debate, reasoned debate, and competition between political parties is the way forward. So 
I, I don't know where that fits on your definitions of liberalism that you laid out, but I think it is a worldview that puts respect for individual rights right at the heart of it. Now, at the 19, end of the 19th century, liberals realized that you could only fulfill that if you had universal franchise. And so liberalism and democracy were put together with popular democracy. And for most of the 20th century, that's really, that's become so much part of what we believe that we think the two are inextricably linked. But I think it's, it's helpful right now to think of them as separate constructs because, and this is something that Yesha Munk, who is a political scientist at Harvard, has encapsulated, but I think he's right. We've had a shift in two directions. We've had undemocratic liberalism, and we've had the rise of illiberal democracies. Undemocratic liberalism is exactly what you're worried about. It's the rise of technocratic powers, be they independent central banks. It's the rise of the European Union, which in many cases, and I completely agree with you, has in the name of promoting what it sees as a liberal order in Europe, been, some, been undemocratic in the way it has achieved that. On the other side, and partly in, in reaction to that, you've had the rise of illiberal democracies, and Viktor Orban's Hungary is a classic example of that. He proudly proclaims his is an illiberal democracy where you undermine the institutions that protect the individual, but you say it's okay because you have a popular mandate to do it. And what worries me is that those illiberal democracies seem, history suggests, inextricably to go on the road towards authoritarianism, and that's where I think we should all really be worried. That's the, that's, there is a road that takes you from the populist nationalism that unites Viktor Orban, Matteo Salvini, some of the Trump crowd, gradually towards the erosion of basic democratic rights at the end of it. So what do we need to do? Well, I'm not going to rehearse my essay, but I think the answer is that liberals need to reinvent liberalism. Because, and, and you're absolutely right, liberals have lost credibility. Um, the establishment, so to speak, has lost credibility massively because of the financial crisis, because of the way the last 10 years have been held. Liberals didn't recognize where things were going wrong. They didn't recognize that the costs, although globalization overall brought lots of benefits, it did bring huge costs to certain people and there was insufficient attention paid to that. And perhaps most important, and that's, that was kind of the centerpiece of the essay we wrote, I think liberal established, the established elite has become conservative rather than liberal. Because they benefit most from the system, there has, there's been a loss of the kind of reforming zeal that liberals once had. And liberals have been much, become too much of a kind of status quo group. It's okay, we don't need to change things too much because we're doing fine from this system. And what we tried to do in that essay was to lay out why liberals needed to kind of reinvent themselves and recapture that reformist zeal. And that's, and I'll end with this, that's what happened at the end of the 19th century. And it's really worth looking back. You know, Mark Twain was right, I think. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the parallels between where we are now and the end of the 19th, early 20th century are enormous. There had been a huge rise in immigration, big backlash to it, huge period of technological change, the Industrial Revolution, huge period of globalization, huge geopolitical shifts, Britain's decline as the 19th century power relative to the US, all sorts of parallels. And at that time, you had a big crisis of liberalism. Liberalism in this country reinvented itself, in the US it reinvented itself, and you had a big shift in the relationship between the state and the market and the state and the individual. And I think we're in the sort of beginnings of that kind of a scale of change. And if liberals don't recognize that they need to reinvent themselves and we need to think about what's the right way to sustain liberalism in the 21st century, then I think that we, have, we are really in trouble. And I think what's happened in terms of entering the era of the strongman tells us where we might end up if we don't have that reinvention. Thank you very much.
Uh, thanks, Danny. And I, th I, th I think it's uh, something worth uh, untangling that point about liberal democracy and unhooking the two so you can take a fresh look at them. That was very useful. Um, Bruno. If there's one sensibility that defines the, the present political moment, it is an overblown um, and actually usually histrionic sense of disorder and danger. And the lament is that Brexit, Trump, European populism unleashes a politics that threatens something called the liberal order. How, how often have you heard that expression, liberal order, um, over the last uh, few years? This is, we are told, a rules-based world that sits upon vital state institutions that operate in many cases, such as central banks or the EU, independently of a cut and thrust um, of democratic politics. It is, above all, an orderly way of doing politics within rules, within the respectability, conventions, and etiquette of the established um, order. As Fukuyama celebrated with his, his end of history thesis, it is an order and a set of political routines which over decades has silenced, obliterated, eliminated questions as to what constitutions and forms of government represent the best of human communal life. Just to remind him what he said in that famous, superb 1989 essay, he said, are there, in any other words, any fundamental contradictions in human life that would be resolvable by an alternative political economic structure? The answer was no, and that is the liberal order. The threat, we are told, um, so the cry to defend the liberal order is essentially an appeal for authority and firm rulers to define um, the limits to politics. The threat, we're told, is very grave. It's war, fascism, authoritarianism, you name it. All the, all the horsemen of the apocalypse have been let slip, if you believe the hype. The heightened sense of imminent catastrophe is bound up with contempt for and mistrust of the majority of people who we hear from alleged liberals are susceptible, easily manipulated, prey to xenophobic and irrational passions that once unleashed uh, could consume uh, civilization itself. I want to argue that this era where the political order and continuity is cracked is one of, of opportunity. Yes, it's challenging, but it's one of opportunity. It's one that requires the courage, requires courage, not the flight to hide behind the rules and rulers of the current order. The outlook is grim. Writing earlier this week, uh, Robert Kagan um, the neocon turned uh, Clinton-loving defender of the liberal world order um, spelt out the terrifying consequences of the challenge to the status quo. He wrote, when the prevailing order breaks down, when the rocks are overturned, the things living beneath them, the darkest elements of a human spirit crawl out. That's what happened in the first half of the 20th century. The circumstances in which Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini rose to power gave them ample opportunity to show what they were capable of. Had there been an order in place to blunt those ambitions, we might never have come to know them as tyrants, aggressors and mass killers. Today, the rocks are being overturned again. This is a pretty hysterical uh, response to the democratic election uh, of Trump, the vote for Brexit or a populist government um, in Italy. It is a demand for institutions, usually of state, underpinned by uh, coercive power, uh, the rule of law, as being the ultimate arbiter of politics, the backstop, if you like.
The desire for order regards unrestrained politics as leading to fascism, almost as a state of political nature, and assigns the key role to state institutions in constraining politics at the level of national sovereignty, self-determination or freedom, and especially free speech. Politics is not seen as practices defined by the rationality of autonomous individuals or interests, uh, uh, of autonomous individuals pursuing conscious interests, which is in fact real liberalism. Instead, the demand for a return to order is based on the illiberal idea that people are ignorant, manipulated by fake news, and driven by easily manipulated xenophobic impulses. In this worldview, popular passions unleashed by national electorates lead to the rise of aggressive state nationalism unless politics is paced, placed under some kind of supranational uh, political restraint. In the revisionist account of history, expelled well by Kagan, it was unrestrained popular politics moved by dark passions cut loose by economic crisis that swept the fascists and the Nazis to power in the 1930s. In this worldview, the role of the EU and institutions of political um, order is to restrain the political passions of the European populace. Populism is always disruptive to political order. It locates the source of authority in the people in democratic politics expressed at the ballot box rather than in state institutions and the rule of law. Today's self-styled liberal defenders directly counterpose order to majoritarian democracy. This can take crusaders for the liberal order into strange places. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is the self-declared defender of liberal values in Europe, the new Jupiterian prince of the liberal order. In their pursuit of order, liberals are discovering the benefits of de Gaulle's strongman const neo-Bonapartist constitution. While Viktor Orban, the Hungarian nationalist, is castigated, there has been a deafening liberal silence on Macron's abolition, for example, of the power of the French National Assembly to amend his decrees. Decrees, While Trump's decrees are rightly decried as an abuse of executive power, Macron's are praised as a virtue of his robust liberalism. I want to end on, 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 on a note of challenge. This is not the time for orderly politics, policed by liberal monitors of the rules. It is a time, as I said, for courage. To paraphrase Hannah Arendt's great essay on freedom, it is time to show the bravery to step outside routines. It's time to think for ourselves, to engage, not to flee, which means abandoning the political stage to strong men like Macron or supranational legal orders uh, like the EU's. We need to be brave rather than fearful and slavish to institutions and political practices based on a prejudiced view of humanity. Right, th thank you very much. A uh, call to arms there to be brave from Bruno, but also some, uh, I think some really interesting thinking about uh, what lies behind some of the calls for order and the fear of the popular masses. Back to you, Steve, if I can, or as a kind of way of starting this. Um, one of the uh, ways that you indicated your concern was this, uh, um, the dichotomy, or, you know, the kind of setting up of the elite versus the, uh, the anti-elite. And you talked about the dangers of that. But one of the things I was thinking when you were speaking, and also it kind of came through a little, was that I do think that the political elite has changed. I mean, you actually then conceded that. So 
there, there is a sense in which those people who are elected uh, politicians of any party have changed over recent years and become technocrats with little interest in. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're a different breed. So your principal defence of the politician, which I get, the idea that there is this group who are in a bubble is not entirely untrue over recent years because of the changing nature of what people have seen as politics and the kind of things that uh, politics has been required to do in a way. Or uh, am I, is that, you don't recognise that? No you're, no, you're right. And that's why there has been a reaction to that. I mean, some of the phrases that were banded around in the Blair era are retrospectively shocking. I thought they were at the time. You know, when Blair said in politics what matters is what works is a denial of politics because no one goes into politics arguing I'm in favour for what doesn't work. The whole essence of politics is a debate about what works. So if you kill that off, you're killing off politics. And that's what happened in the 80s and 90s. But it was not a consequence of cocooned elitism. It was the opposite. They believed that this is what the people wanted. The only way in Britain and to some extent America a centre-left government could come in is if they projected themselves purely through the prism of competence. And in fact, one of their juxtapositions was competence, Labour, New Labour versus incompetence, Tory. And that, because again, that kills off politics because who's in favour of incompetence? It's ridiculous. But that era has now passed and there's a reaction to it, which I think is a good thing. We're back into a battle of ideas. But it wasn't a, that whole thing was not a consequence of elitism. That's what I challenge. Okay, so what, what, just in terms of what, what Bruno is saying, and then Bruno, you can maybe come back on some of the things Steve said. There does appear to be, and it does feel as though it's an elite reaction, an elite reaction to, to, to votes they weren't either anticipating, didn't want, told us not to do. I mean, that's in the Brexit thing. There is a kind of palpable sense of, well, we told you what way to vote. Why didn't, what happened there, right? We gave you a vote so you'd vote the way we wanted you to vote and you didn't do it. And we told you, all of us told you. And then, and then a kind of reaction against does feel like a from on high. I mean, do you recognize, and then, and, then is, and then suddenly everyone goes, oh my God, fascism's around the corner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you recognize some of what Bruno was saying in that sense? Could, could I just, in yeah. 10 seconds, you yeah, yeah, bring yeah. Bruno in? Uh, no. I mean, look what's happened since 2016. The referendum was lost. And the last two years of British politics, every second of every uh, uh, bit of energy has been thrown at trying to deliver the result. And, and even now, on the edge of an epic crisis, you have a prime minister and a leader of the opposition theoretically committed to delivering a referendum result, which they know or think will be bad. Okay. So, no, the exact opposite. They've responded on from day one. Anything you want to say in terms of Steve's thesis, for want of a better term, uh, Bruno? Some of what he was saying about the, the unhelpfulness of the elite versus anti-elite is, 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 um, uh, is very useful. I mean, I'm not the only one who finds sort of Boris Johnson... Jacob Rees-Mogg as sort of anti-elitists as, as, a, as a, a, a sort of curious moment. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, it, it is important to look, um, as the uh, Economist's manifesto um, notes, that whilst elites may or may not be uh, cocooned, um, 
may or may not have become separate. I mean, I think there is a problem that so many MPs um, regard um, being an MP as a career, one that lasts um, their whole uh, life with, with almost civil service perks, um, uh, rather than something quite temporary. Um, I think there's, whether or not we actually have a, a cocooned uh, politicians, because again, yes, as, as Steve Wright notes quite rightly, they're overly sensitive to what they think public opinion is, but there has been a shift to take a lot of questions outside of politics and hmm. institutions like the European Union are, are basically about managing political uh, conflicts outside the elect electoral cycle. They, it's a lovely Brussels uh, yeah. euphemism about, you know. Um, um, and I think that really is a problem. Um, I think that um, the unreceptiveness of lots of areas of life, mm -hmm. the economy, uh, education, uh, the remoteness of those policies from people's lives and how actually unrepresentative they seemed um, was a big part, um, a big part of Brexit. It was also, we have to recognise, um, a moment when everyone's vote was equal and people saw, you know, at last up in Sunderland, um, the first chance to kick hard, to kick very, very hard um, in almost um, 40 um, years. I think New Labour was actually much more significant. New Labour was, it wasn't, uh, New Labour was, yes, about content, uh, competence um, and managerialism, but New Labour actually did try and redefine policy. So I always think of that 2005 speech by um, Tony Blair, where he, he basically redefined um, humanity, where he basically said, to get on in this world, you need, quote, to be quick to adapt and slow to complain. And that is almost like, that's how they would like us to be, that the world, we, the people, in the view of people like um, Tony Blair and a lot of these um, institutions, they would like us to be quick to adapt, to be very, very flexible. You want a servant who's quick to adapt and, of course, slow uh, to complain. And I think the Brexit vote and a lot of these upsurges of, of, of popular anger is people are sick of being forced to adapt to what they don't like and they're sick of not really being able to complain effectively. Right, well, one thing I want to just uh, quickly ask uh, Zani. One of the things that I think was extraordinary about um, the Brexit vote, this is not the content of it, was the way that, as it were, the, 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 the voters entered onto the stage in a way that you felt they hadn't been. Whatever one thinks about what has happened, there has been a sense, I mean, since Fukuyama, not because of him, but um, in, that, in that kind of period, that politics was conducted by people over there and everyone else just was just... I mean, you really were voting fodder, right? And that this... It did inspire people. I mean, it did politicise people. There are people that I know at this festival, I met them yesterday, who had never voted before, who, who, who were politicised by it. We're excited about it. And lots of people who voted remain similarly kind of got engaged in the process. So something happened which indicated that before that, politics had been not to that. So that, to me, seems a very positive moment. And to have people kind of be worrying about it leading to all these terrible things then can look as though you're being anti-them. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, th I think that's right. And I, I think the really big question is, is what has happened in the last, let's say, three years, two, three years, um, an opportunity to remake liberal democracy um, and strengthen it? Or is it a threat? And 
it's clearly a bit of both. I think, that, yes, the, the voice of, of people being heard and people being energized, and it's not just after the referendum here, it's also what's happening in the US. Unbelievable numbers of people in the US have been energized um, on both sides by the election of Donald Trump. And I think that's great. I'm, I'm all for that. And I'm all for, you know, the shakeup that was absolutely needed of the kind of established political order. So I, I you know, completely agree with, with Bruno and Dan on that. The, the point I'm making about it, you know, also being cognizant of where the angry anger against the established sort of liberal democratic system can lead is based simply on not just sort of histrionic, I think somebody used, it's not a histrionic look at the past, but it is conscious of what's happened in the past and it's conscious of what can happen when, you know, the tyranny of when sort of populist, popular majoritarianism becomes the sole definer of policy. And it also is driven, frankly, by what's happening right now. If you look at what's happening in Poland, I have no objection to any political party taking power. Law and justice can have whatever policies it wants. What I object to is the dismantling of the independent judiciary, the attacks on the free press, the, the sort of dismantling of the institutions which we have collectively across the Western world put in place to circumscribe um, the democratic system in order to sustain the sort of rights and freedoms of the individual. And I think that's what's really disconcerting. And similarly, if you look at what's happened in emerging countries like Turkey, where they, those institutions were never as strong as they are in the West, they've also been rolled back. So I don't worry about, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's actually great that people are more engaged in the political system. It's jolly good that the, you know, establishment got a kicking. It's, it's forcing this reconsideration is really important. And I think it's, you know, it's forced lots of people to really question what it is, what the, both from sort of technical policies, but more broadly, what is the right balance between, you know, what should people have a say over, what is best done by technocrats, all of that's fantastic. What, what worries me is the, is the tendency of, of a sort of, and I'm gonna use, you know, the word populism is used too broadly and it often becomes meaningless, but in the name of the pop people yeah. to roll back what are very important constraints on power that, are, that I think are the important sort of center of liberalism. And, and that for me would be, that's why I'm worried about it. But I think it's absolutely an opportunity. That's why we wrote endless pages in The Economist last week about how to grasp this opportunity. But it's an opportunity that if we don't grab it, the potential consequences, and I'm not being histrionic, but the potential consequences could be grave. That's all I'm saying. Okay, Daniel, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, very, very quickly. Uh, I think what Steve says is, is fair about politicians, but his focus is too narrow because in fact the uh, key decisions, so many of the key decisions not taken by politicians at all. And one of the interesting things I mentioned is that the fact that Parliament, the House of Commons, is right at the centre of debate and how they vote is actually going to matter um, it, it, thanks to the majority that the government didn't achieve, I think is a really positive outcome. But it's, it's unusual. I mean, you haven't seen this for a very long time indeed. Um, what you have is a set of civil servants and a set of, I don't like the word technocrats, but, but people who see themselves as administering a machine and, and, and not actually taking, a, taking account. And, and those are the people you need to focus on rather than the poor backbench MP stuck in his windy surgery on a Friday afternoon dealing with people's housing cases. Yes, they do much more of that than before, but that isn't what we're really talking about at all. And where I disagree with Zanny is that I don't think there has been a shake-up. I think that's exactly what we haven't seen. We've seen a discussion about it all, but what we've actually seen is a fight back. We've seen a fight back by that 
that, that governing class, if I can call it, call it that, uh, to eviscerate uh, what uh, people voted for in Brexit. You see it in the United States as well, where every um, decree that um, executive order that Trump makes is now routinely taken to the Supreme Court, even the ones that shouldn't, and so on. The, the whole notion that there is an illegitimacy about what he's doing rather than a disagreement with what he is doing. There is a very strong fight back. This battle is not by any means, isn't, isn't even started, um, and, and, and we are losing it. Uh, as far as strong men are concerned, and I do share Zanny's, I mean, there was a lot more in common between Zanny and me than I sort of thought there might be, but I do share uh, the anxiety about that. But one of the advantages, I'll say slightly con controversially, of being a Tory, I'm using the word Tory in distinction from a, a member of the Conservative Party, one of the um, advantages of having a Tory outlook on life is that you're not necessarily committed to universalism. You can actually say that some systems work better in some cultures and some countries than, than they do in others. You don't actually have to commit yourself to a liberal world order, even if you can say it's something you want to live with in your own country. Uh, and, and, and so I ask myself, what is, I always ask myself this question, if something bad happens, what really is the downside? And if the downside of having a strong man, all these strong men, they go away. And I'm glad Bruno said that Macron uh, is a strong man. The Grim Reaper, if nothing else, takes them away eventually. Sometimes you have to roll with the punches and you have to say that if you really believe that democracy and the control of the people is what is going to win through, then there are times to roll with the punches and say maybe that's something we can go with now but we believe in it and it will come back rather than say we've got to stop it happening because the consequences of that are turning out to be very grave in terms of public trust. Okay. And public trust is actually one of the things that maybe when we're having this discussion... Anyway, he wants to speak, basically. To what degree do you believe uh, the electoral systems are contributing to people's frustration with the political system and with the so-called elites? Because in the US we see we have a president who lost the popular vote, and then in, the, in the UK we have people in safe seats who believe that there's no real point in voting, despite some of them becoming, becoming spectacularly unsafe recently. But, um, and, and the thing is... Um, how realistic is it, focusing on the UK, how realistic is it to have an educated and constructive discussion on the matter if we have to change something, given the way that we discussed the EU, the EU, the EU debate in 2016? Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the um, title of this is, is Democracy Under Siege, but Zani keeps confusing liberal democracy and democracy and sort of putting them into one. And um, it feels to me as if it's been under siege for my whole life, and it's just, the siege has just been broken. Yeah, I was a bit perturbed when I think Steve Richards said, you know, um, you wouldn't give an unexperienced actor um, a part in the Royal Shakespeare Company, and just in the same way you wouldn't uh, make someone a politician who has not any experience of being a politician. And, you know, I feel transported back into the 4th century BC, when the uh, major anti-democrat of that period, and indeed the history of the world, Plato made exactly the same fundamental anti-democratic arguments you have just made, namely that you would not put a uh, ship captain in the steering, at the steering wheel who has never steered a ship, and many arguments to that effect. So I really doubt that you can be anything other than an anti-democrat. Now, I would also say... Ooh. Yes, I would say that. They're not polite, the Battle of Ideas audiences. Right, right. At least okay. you compare it to Plato's. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, go right, right, carry on, quick. Okay. Um, I would say, um, you know, historians look back on Rome and said the main reason for the downfall of Rome was that it was a city-state that expanded into an empire but retained its form of governance as a city-state and that fundamentally weakened it. Now we have a situation today which is, in a way, parallel to that. We have nation-states in Europe that have expand, expanded into international states in the form of the EU and central banks and I just have to say that that must in some way weaken the democracies of those individual nation states. Uh, thank you. The function of democracy, is it not, is to prevent abuses of power. And it does that by maximally dissipating the power to decide who gets to govern, by uh, having an election amongst all the people as to who that might be. The idea of democracy is not that everyone gets to be a tyrant, but that no one gets to be a tyrant. But once people have been elected, the degree of power that they may hold um, may undermine that purpose. The more different things the state controls, the less the state is democratically accountable for any one of those things. Many of the things that people have been complaining about, such as the stagnating standard of living, are as a direct result of the abuses of state power. For example, the housing crisis caused by authoritarian planning control, the state not only ought ever to have implemented, but ought never to have had the power to have implemented. To what extent does the panel agree that in order to to further the function of democracy to prevent abuse of power, it is necessary to dissipate the power of the state, not only by dissipating the power of who gets to be in government, but by dissipating the power that the government has when it's there. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, um, I agree with the, with the comment earlier that what seems to be very weird about the discussion about democracy at the moment is that it's only uh, held through the uh, sort of prism of a catastrophe. And it's sort of interesting to me, I know an awful lot, I'm part of the globe-trotting global elite uh, who kind of deals with a lot of business issues globally. And that's actually interesting to hear all the problems of democracy. Malaysia last year booted out its government for the first time in its entire history um, and replaced it because it felt there needed to be a change. And I was speaking to a, a colleague I had from Malaysia who kind of, was telling me about the various different issues they had, the kind of rampant attempts by the government to prevent it from coming back home, how people would be organising drive all the way across the country over hours and hours and hours, days and days and days, so they could go back home and vote. And you know, the end result of that, though, is they kind of boot out the great shift, they bring back in a previous Prime Minister, and someone else who's been in prison. There may not be that much of a sh shift. So I sort of said, what do you think the real end result of all this was? What does this kind of democracy mean to you? And she said, it's the fact that I can have this conversation in this bar with you. You don't normally speak freely about politics in this country, we speak freely about it now. And then I would step out of that world, into the world of here, where democracy is always a problem that has to be confronted. And the only way we can go back to it is to talk about it from being the delivering us from evil, keeping tech tyranny out the door, but democracy never delivers anything good. And actually, I just wondered whether there's actually more space in this discussion to be had for the fact that actually it's not just about this tyranny. It's Sorry. a positive power to change things. And actually, democracy is always going to be in in trouble unless people are willing to talk about how they can change things for the better through democracy, through debate, through bringing people with them. And that seems to be the real democratic crisis. We can't conceive of a positive change. Yeah, so we've heard obviously a lot about upholding liberal institutions and sort of crisis in democracy. So do any of you ever consider a democratic decision to be undemocratic? And if so, when is that? Well, what do you think, Go on. Well, I think, um, well, no, I think every decision made in a democratic manner is democratic. That's why I don't consider we should always defend liberal institutions. I think there are more ways of upholding democracy. 
I don't think there's anything that should be untouchable by the people if they don't wish it to be. A quick question on that point. Um, question to the panel. Uh, is there a word uh, uh, that captures or describes the taking pleasure in the pain and suffering and external crisis of an elite? Uh, is there a word in German or something? See, I've really admired you over the years uh, as, a, as, as an expert uh, and as a commentator. Uh, really, I'm shine out. But you are part of the elite and example. Let me just try and explain very quickly. You said um, uh, you can't oppose elite, anti-elite, uh, uh, and you said as if uh, political elites um, and MPs are cocooned and isolated, as if they never go to their constituencies or speak to real people, so all the whole time they do uh, focus groups on that. Um, I don't think that anybody accuses politicians of not spending time with people. Yeah, that's not criticism. The criticism basically is, and Brexit shows, is that they are disengaged. They don't look at the world in a way that can engage with people. So Stephen Clinton was here yesterday. Yeah, he said something almost the same as you. He used an analogy of uh, people haven't got on the train. Yeah, in winter. You said people feel uh, left behind and out of control. Uh, Stephen Kinnick um, uh, goes to Avon, uh, a poor, tough constituency with Port Talbot and the old mining uh, traditions there. He goes there, he listens to people. Stephen Kinnick clearly yeah, is a member of an elite yeah, uh, and doesn't really understand the experience and can't connect with them. So uh, the train, the people being left behind, I don't think, as it were, are the majority. It's your conceit that thinks that they feel left behind. What's happening at the moment is you and the outlook of a current elite are being left behind. Yeah, hello. Um, I kind of agree with uh, Steve. I think he's saying that uh, Brexit was actually a flawed vote, but it's a democratic way. Uh, what the results of it seem to be a, a democratic way of showing that it's actually a flawed vote. And we shouldn't have gone down that route in the first place to uh, try and uh, resolve some actually much more complex issues. Um, and also, do you not think that some people, or many people, might have been voting against David Cameron, who actually offered to resign if he would lose the vote, as they were voting against uh, somebody who was clearly a representative of political elite, come through uh, you know, a system of the private schools, particular university, all the rest of it. I mean, Ethan, I don't know, is one of the Oxbridge universities. Uh, perhaps people were voting against that. I just want to um, ask the panel to think of remaking the case for freedom. It was brought up, I think, as remaking the case for liberalism. But liberalism is a word that no one understands, I don't think, in the general population. Uh, you know, it's a word like conservative party, which means nothing, because it gathers together too many different things. But freedom, individual people understand. Free exchange, free expression, and such like. Those are the roots of prosperity. And when you think of a continuum, you go from freedom through democracy to tyranny and dictatorship. And what we've done is we've gone a bit too far in the democracy direction. We haven't got to trick tyranny, and that's fine, and I don't want to go there. But what we need to do is respect the need for more freedom, more individual freedom. The decisions can be made by individuals, all of us choosing for ourselves. And we've ceded too much of that to government. Um, lots of things to, to, to come back to, but just briefly, somebody asked whether there was any circumstances in which democracy should be constrained, and I think the answer is yes. 
and I would go back to the last comment there, when it tramples on individuals' freedom, if you want to use that word, rather than individuals' rights. And what liberal democracy does, and I, I'm, I'm conscious it's a word that, you know, people mean different things by, but the, the reason for putting the two together is a belief in democracy, but constrained so that it doesn't trample on individuals' freedom. So would, are there circumstances in which I think democracy should be constrained? Absolutely. If there is a democratic vote to trample on the rights of huge chunks of a population, then that should be constrained. I absolutely think so. I think that the untrammeled power of the people, if you will, to do anything with no constraints leads us in the route towards tyranny in the end. If it's, and so I, I do think that I'm a proud liberal who believes in, in liberal democracy, and that's what I mean by it, and it's, it's upholding individual freedoms to do that. So you know, that's, that, I think, is sort of unambiguous and important to, to lay out. And, and does that mean that at some level I think there's a limit to popular democracy? Yes, there should be constraints on it, but they're not constraints. They're constraints that are necessary to prevent concentrations of power and uphold the freedom of the individual. Beyond that, I think there was a question early on about whether this was a function of different political systems. So, you know, you pointed to uh, President Trump losing the popular vote, um, but being president and, and looking here at the first-past-the-post system. I actually think that we are seeing this anger against the established order in all kinds of political systems. We're seeing it in the US, which has a very different system to the UK, which has a first-past-the-post system. We're seeing it in Europe, which has proportional representation. So the, it's, I don't think it's, it's wrong to look at the political sort of electoral system. It's much more important to understand what's driving that anger and to understand how to, to, to kind of respond to that. And I'm, you know, that's, I think, where there's a point of agreement between, but probably between all of us on the panel, that there is a very clear dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I think that, you know, everybody in the status quo needs to understand that and needs to recognize it and needs to find ways to, to address that anger. I don't happen to think that, you know, referendum-based uh, democracy is the right way forward to do that. But I do think there is a wake-up call to everybody in, whether it's the existing political establishment or everywhere else, that we need to respond to that kind of frustration and anger. And, and, and let's have debates about how to do that. Okay, uh, Bruno, take you next. I think it, it's important when we talk about undemocratic democracy is to ask who constrains. Um, what kind of constitution do you have? Do you have a constitution that relies on freedom and relies on the practices um, of free politics and citizenship? Or do you have a constitution that relies on the state apparatus um, as that constraint. And I think that's the problem. And I think that's, um, we've seen um, practices and institutions uh, emerge, including the European Union, and where the state has taken on this constraining role and it's also evacuated certain policies from politics. I would also really, it's really important that we don't buy into the notion that institutions such as the judiciary, and judiciary are state officials, by the way, they're amazingly unaccountable um, uh, state officials, but they are state officials. They might be trained as lawyers, but they are um, state officials. They represent the Crown uh, in Britain, which is uh, the state. The judiciary in Britain has never been beyond criticism. It's been subject to very lively debate. One of the best political books is a book called The Politics of Judiciary by J.A. Griffiths, who unfortunately is not around anymore. We last updated it in 1997. It is a brilliant, searing critique in the radical, liberal British tradition, democratic tradition, 
of the judiciary. The judiciary in Poland and Hungary, which, by the way, don't have a long tradition of Western democracy because they were uh, Stalinist uh, dictatorships until uh, Francis Fukuyama, uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, period. The judiciary there are re is really contested. Um, it's certainly contested um, in Poland. When the EU came after Hungary on the judiciary, it was because Orban was getting rid of judges who had often been the wives of Stalinist apparatchiks, um, and he wanted to uh, clear them out. He had a very great popular mandate with them. The EU also objected rather foolishly to the idea, the Hungarian idea, that people who worked on the central bank should swear an oath of loyalty to the parliament rather than the ECB one. Uh, one so what I'm saying is that these institutions are often very, very flawed. They've often been contested, and damn right, they should be. But once you start having const politics constituted as relying fundamentally on those constraints, and those constraints are state um, institutions, you see some of the distortions we've seen um, over uh, the last uh, two decades, particularly in emergence to the European Union. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve. Anything you want to pick up? Uh, yeah, just, I mean, when I argue that uh, the elite versus anti-elite juxtaposition is dangerous. What I'm trying to, it's, it's dangerous for me now, I can see, because um, uh, that's the only bit which gets heard, and then the second bit doesn't get heard. The first bit is, if you can decouple that dangerous perception, you then are free to work out what they got wrong. And they did misread um, some of the signals that they were neurotically trying to read about what people wanted. But it was difficult. There's a brilliant essay by Robert Skidelsky in this week's New Statesman. I read it one o'clock this morning, my Saturday night. I was so excited I couldn't sleep afterwards. Um, and it, 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 it reminds us of the degree to which it was really impossible to get any other argument out post-2008 other than the need for sweeping spending <coughs> cuts and the size of the state uh, uh, shrunk and some of the mediating agencies uh, which were democratically accountable became even more dysfunctional than they were already. Um, and so that was a, a misreading of what voters wanted, I think. But th that's the argument about elite versus anti-elite is a separate one. And just uh, finally, uh, some people in the audience are saying the government should do less, but my reading from uh, you from saying your view is a conservative outlook, and to some extent mine, is that it is obvious that government needs to do more. If institutions are being uh, responsible with no forms of accountability for a lot of what goes on, clearly people are going to feel disconnected. Okay, Daniel, finally, and then out to the audience. Uh, well, I think the dichotomy Zani is pursuing between uh, popular democracy and freedom, although of theoretical interest, is, is not actually the issue that we face at all. There is, as far as I know, very little threat to freedom from democracy. The freedom to control the internet, the freedom to lock up people without trial, um, and, and I could list a whole load of other things that have happened in the last few years. The, the, the increase in terrorism laws, the intrusion of the state, 
I don't know any democratic demand for any of those. They've all come from a, I'm going to use the word now, a technocratic liberal state apparatus that is trying to administer the rules. The threat to freedom, individual freedom, is not coming from popular votes. There's nobody out there in Sunderland saying, let's control the internet more. Um, it's just not, I mean, I don't know, I haven't been there, but I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> My imagination can reach that far, and I just don't believe that's what they're saying on the streets of Sunderland. What, what, that is all coming from people who are actually core to the governing apparatus and who see themselves as administering rules. And, and that comes to the point this gentleman made and somebody else made, is, of course, that when you have a state that has decided that it does not have a, a government, that has decided it does not have a role, um, and a set of functions, but rather it is responsible for everything, uh, which is now how we rather uh, the government sees itself, so to the, including what is on your sodding pizza, for God's sake, as we discovered yesterday. A government that is responsible for everything, then you not only get serious threats to freedom that don't arise from democratic sources, um, democratically, then you produce ridicule. You also get massive incompetence. We have this decision by the government to allow councils to build council housing. I can tell you, having served on a council, no council in this country remotely has any project management skills that would allow them to build a shed at the bottom of, your, of a garden. And, and, you know, which one of you, with your own money, wanting to build your own house, would actually say, I'll get the council to build it for me? This is absolutely crazy. Okay. But the state has just got beyond bounds. The Brexit... I just have to say this, madam. I'm, I'm not going to be... I, I could be quite aggressive, but I'm just going to say that if you can't accept that people could understand the question, do we want to leave the EU or remain in the EU, but you have to think, you have to persuade yourself that they were actually voting on a range of other matters and they weren't voting on the question in front of themselves, then not only do I think that you've mistaken what democracy is about, but you've also flown in the face of all the survey evidence that has been taken since that vote actually happened. Thank you. Right. Okay, right. Hello, good morning. Um, I live in France, and um, just on the subject of Macron and what's happening in France, Macron said a few months ago, we do not need democratic authoritarianism, we need to put the authority back into democracy. Saying stuff like that is acceptable in France because there is no real pressure on the man. And the French do feel in a sort of vacuum. Macron came out of nowhere through the collapse of the existing centralist parties. Now, when I talk about Brexit, uh, the French ask me, always in a very quiet voice, and they always tell me, you've made such a bad decision. You have. And, but I actually think that they're seriously envious because there is a kind of hiatus in France, there's a kind of vacuum in French politics. And I think they're actually quite envious of Britain at the moment. Why? Because I think we're quite privileged to have discussions like this, have the turmoil, talk about democracies. Democracy is being critical, opening up debate and inviting in the wolf into the sheep's den sometimes. And the French, finally, the French who are a nation and a country were reputed for revolutions, reputed for turbulence. They are envious of us right now. Okay, thank you. Oh, and we're a lot. Um, Amanda's up here, and we can all go angry. 
question in the wrong way. Democracy has given us Brexit, which is okay, either way, because 48, 52, it's half and half. There are always going to be lots of different people with lots of different views about lots of different things. I think in history, the history of the planet as a whole, it's, it's, we've got evolution going on. We finally got to the point where every person knows about every other person and actually can communicate with each other. And I think we need to get a process that gives us a world policy that is good for the planet as a whole and every individual person. And it's not going to be world leaders. The clever people are the nerdy people who do all the stuff in the background. So if the world leaders can be charismatic and say, OK, in our country we have this and another country has a different way, different religion as well counts along with different politics, but therefore get the clever people to work out the details of how to move forward save the planet and look after every single human being as well. Thank you very much. Um, Zani, I think you've been very honest because you keep talking about liberal democracy as an alternative to democracy. I think you've been quite clear that to you liberalism is about constraining democracy. It's about taking issues away from the people or it's about ensuring that the answers are rigged in a certain way or shaped in a certain way, which is why you've talked so much about the independent judiciary You've talked about independent rights, uh, and you haven't said as much, but I'm sure you love all these supranational organisations, whether it's the EU or the ECHR and so on and so forth, which are really about stopping people from having proper control over the formulation of policy. I think the problem that you've got, and I think this is why the elite are so terrified about this these days, is that time's up. You've succeeded from mill onwards in constraining the democratic will, but the people in the 21st century are saying enough. People now want to be in control of policy and they want to get rid of all these supranational organisations and ways of constraining the democratic will which have been built up. The time for emasculating democracy is over. Okay, thank you. This is uh, just uh, in response to something Sally said earlier that's open to the Congress uh, of and how and when are freedoms determined and where is the line drawn? Because throughout history there have been shifts in morality. What was acceptable 20 years ago is necessarily acceptable today, nor will it be acceptable in 20 years' time, or maybe it will be so. And also, just uh, to your main points, I mean, you said that you would use freedom, freedom as opposed to rights. Um, however, presently, rights would be a better measure than freedoms, as we uphold the Universal Human Rights Treaty. Following on from um, previous comment, I mean, I. I I think it's being slightly unfair. I think we are trying to defend individual freedom against the tyranny of the majority, 
but I, I half agree with him as well. But I think, and why I agree with him is because I, I want to challenge this idea of faith in progress. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, faith is a, is a religious term, it means trust. It means trusting in progress, it's inevitability of progress, it's things will, all, things will only get better. And, and I find that that's a, a dangerous development in, quotes, liberalism. And I think it has its roots, and what I think is the root of a lot of our problems here is we've kind of inherited utilitarianism. We've kind of inherited that, I mean it was the first kind of attempt at mathematical kind of totality of maximal ha happiness. And if you look at the, the failings of liberal democracy, it's because of this utilitarian view and only using a, a libertarian defense of individual freedom to mitigate against it. So you have this going back and forth between a kind of collectivist utilitarianism and individual liberty, and that's not sufficient for a healthy democracy. I, was, um, I thought I'd misheard you originally, Danny, when I, I thought you said a need to circumscribe the, circumscribe the democratic system in order to protect the rights of the individual. But I'm beginning to realise that actually you didn't mean exactly that, and I'd like you perhaps to expand on how you, what, what circumstances you would imagine that being necessary, because it seems to me that um, Steve abhors direct democracy, you abhor direct democracy. I'd like to know why. I'd have thought that the reason why direct democracy and democracy generally is so important is, is because it's how we learn to govern ourselves. It's not that we get it right every now and then, but it's through democracy and self-government that people learn to get on with each other and to govern themselves and to become more human and more civilised. So I have to say you're an anti-democrat, and so is Steve, but please come back and defend yourselves. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. Great interventions. Uh, I will take the liberty of um, toning down the Britain-centric discussion. I am from Guatemala, and uh, I come from a region where a lot of democratically elected autocrats trampled on individual liberties. So, um, to, so to Mr. Moylan, I will, be, uh, uh, I will also, uh, I would think that it should be of more caution to, uh, uh, to think that um, unrestricted democracy is, um, uh, is, it comes without peril. Uh, you also here in Europe had a couple of neighbors with, with some infamous autocrats as well. So, uh, to the supranational organizations' uh, uh, contempt in this room also, I will say that these are, in many occasions, the last line of, the faith, of defense for individual rights. So, these institutions that, of course, uh, uh, are, are, um, have a crisis of credibility, and of course, uh, right now, people are uh, um, uh, maybe have taken for granted the, the, uh, the things that these institutions uphold uh, uh, um, are, are not that, use, that useless. Now, to, to my concrete question to, to Sunny, there is, a, 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 to, there is a, a quite clear electoral shape for the adversaries of liberalism, and I would like to uh, know if she knows of an example or she uh, thinks that there that these defenders of the liberal world order should or do already have an electoral alternative 
uh, to oppose the, the rising autocrats, electoral autocrats. Just very quickly, on uh, this, I'll come to the direct democracy point, uh, and it's linked to the points about uh, the people uh, taking control. This is the era where having been ignored. You know my view, I don't think people have been ignored. Uh, in some ways, they have been followed obsessively. Um, but here's the problem uh, about this, and I'll give you one precise example. When Cameron was in opposition, his main advisor then was a guy called Steve Hilton, who was basically a libertarian. He wanted the people to take control without any mediating agencies, and his model was a vegetable cooperative he had bumped into in New York. And he held all these seminars about how people would take control of the housing estates and stuff like that. And he invited commentators along. And it was fascinating because that was the premise to begin with. And they would all speak. And then someone would say, well, who pays for the housing? And they said, well, no, that will come from the Treasury. And then, but then who mediates how the money is being spent? And then what if the money is being spent wrong? And by the end of the evening, they had appointed about 25 different mediating agencies <laughs> to keep control of who was doing what. So you do need mediating agency. The key, and I agree with Daniel, they have to be accountable. And some of them currently aren't. And that brings the problem of direct democracy. Things are so bloody complicated that I'm afraid referendums are an act of deceit on every level. For a start, prime ministers, when they call them, are not fans of direct democracy. They're holding them because they think they're going to get them out of a hole. That's their sole motive. Uh, it never does. It, they, they dig deeper, and Cameron went and others have gone who've held referendums. But also, uh, Daniel said, oh, it was very straightforward. It really wasn't. The multi-layered complexity of this issue just does not lend itself to this form of decision making. So that's why I think direct democracy is dangerous for democracy rather than contributing to it. Thank you very much. That's great. Um, uh, Daniel, your final thought. Uh, thank you very much. Um, in, we've had discussion of Mill and, and Locke, and I think that's good, and even Plato. And the 18th century, of course, uh, substituted for the notion of a god that was moment by moment sustaining the world. Um, a, a more theistic or deistic notion of a clock that was running, you set the clock running and then off it goes. And in a sense, that is what we have inherited in the notion of a rules-based order. It is a profoundly 18th century idea. The challenge is, even if the clock is running smoothly and the rules are ticking along and we're all having to live amongst them, as Bruno said, it requires an awful lot of people to tell us what the time is and, uh, and read the clock for us. And these people who genuinely think they're administering uh, the state for the welfare of its people um, are, in fact, uh, very flawed and quite often people we can't uh, have no accountability to us. And that is the issue of democracy, fundamentally, is... Uh, who is actually governing us and according to what principles and who decided those principles because actually society is not like a clock. Um, the gentleman from Northern Ireland, I just want to throw in, all of these brilliant people from the European Union and from our civil service are actually putting on the table at the moment with no sense of embarrassment or shame a proposal in which Northern Ireland would actually be subject directly 
to the laws of the European Union in a large swathe of single market related activities, and that's a very broad range of activities, with no democratic participation at all. This is how liberal democracy ends up, is that you actually de-democratize an entire society and you consider it a great diplomatic triumph. But I, I really warmed to the lady over there, the young, the young woman over there, who said that democracy, and it's not just democracy, there's lots of other things uh, in life, is actually about learning. It's about learning how to do something worthwhile and making decisions collectively about how, the direction in which we're going to take society is a very worthwhile thing to do. And so I just want to end on this note of provisionality. The desire of the liberal democrats is to, or liberal democracy, I should say, uh, is to have a clock-like system which will always provide, ideally, will always provide the right answers. They admit it can go wrong, but it will provide a framework in which the right answers can be generated. But in fact, we have to recognize that we will not always get the right answers, that there is a learning process. And there is at the heart of this, I agree with Zani, there has to be a genuine contestability, not only about the decisions that are immediately in front of us, but about that framework in which they are framed and made and administered. And, and, and that contestability means that we have to fight we have to be engaged. Democracy, I keep saying, is hard work. It means that you have to fight for something that you want to see happen, and you have to fight hard. But people will only, only fight hard if they know it actually makes a difference. And that is what has been missing for a long time now. Okay, thank you very much. Right. Zane? Sorry, Sonny. Yeah. Um, so, in an attempt to address some of the questions, many questions that you, really good questions uh, that you all had. First of all, uh, there was a, and I'm, I absolutely agree with you here, that the fundamental tenet of liberalism, of sort of 18th, 19th century liberalism, which I laid out, is the contestability of ideas and the inherent conflict in society. Liberals, are, that's a fundamental part, that liberals recognize that, and the belief that debate and discussion is, is an important part of the way forward, is central to liberalism. So too are two other tenets which were brought out by a previous questioner. One is a concern about a concentration of power, which means that's why liberals believe generally in limited government and the free market because it limits the concentration of power. And secondly, it's the universal civic respect for all individuals, which is basically the concept of whether you want it freedom of the individual or individual rights. This sounds like a kind of political theory lecture, but it's quite important because a lot of you, I think, have, have asked questions which suggest that you know, because I'm a liberal, I don't believe in democracy. I do. I think the two things fit together, but it is democracy within the constraints of an underlying sort of liberal values basis. Now, you are, a lady asked, do um, concepts of freedom or rights evolve? Yes, they do. And they evolve through debate and discussion. You know, the, 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 the universally sort of um, believed appropriate rights of women in the 19th century were completely different to what we now think is appropriate. Societies evolve. The right way for, or the, the liberals think the best way for societies to evolve is through rational debate and discussion. That also then gets to how do you link, yeah, very quickly, link the liberal bit and the democratic bit. And just two things I'd throw out to you is many of you have said, you know, you've laid out why the the vote of the people is so important. One is what system of democracy do you have? You know, lots of discussions about 
the, the problems of, of direct democracy relative to representative democracy, but the other is the locus of democracy. Is it the people in the nation state? Is it local government democracy? Is it at some kind of supranational level? I'm not a great believer in the supranational level. I think there are many areas where we could much usefully devolve an awful lot more power to local democracy and we could decentralize much more better. But the notion that there is some sort of democracy has to, you have to answer what is the geographic locus that you want the, the, the people to, to opine over. And then I would say, once you've worked that out and you've worked out what system you want, the safety that you get from the rule of law encapsulated in illiberalism and, and the constraints that are imposed on the demos by um, ways to enshrine individual rights and individual freedom, the two together are what I think leads us to a, the system that has been you know, most successful over the last 200 years. Thank you very much. Finally. Um, I think we're, we're, we're actually really all very lucky to be alive. We're living in a moment Speaking um, to the microphone. We're speaking um, at a moment, at a, at a, a really important historical moment, a, a, a moment that was as important is as important um, as 1989 or or 1945. Any of those big um, dates. What we're really seeing um, is a challenge to the end of history uh, project that I referred to um, right um, at the beginning. We're seeing the crumbling of an order that was built on um, the idea that it represented the terminus. It represented the destination. There was nowhere else to go. There was no alternative. We have arrived. And I think the mo what we're seeing at the moment, and we're already seeing it in, in terms of this, the end of the 19th century is a good comparison. We are seeing, again, questions as to what constitutions and forms of government represent the best of human communal life. And communal life is, is very important there. I'm, I'm not so hostile to direct democracy. Why aren't I hostile to direct democracy? Because I think we're at a moment when lots of experiments should be carried out. They can be disruptive, but I think we need um, disruption. I think the final point, I, 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 which is a point I made at the beginning, um, again, about courage um, and bravery, and it echoes um, some of uh, what Daniel said, but also what's in uh, Zani's uh, 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 manifesto as well about the need uh, for struggle. It's really important. We're at a very exciting uh, moment. It's really important for us to come out of our comfort zone. And I'm afraid that these institutions, this liberal order, is very much a, a comfort zone, a political uh, safe space. We want to come out into a realm of debate, dispute, contest, and also um, commitment. Because... If this order is going to be where questions of what constitutions and form of government represent the best of human communal life, it needs us to participate. And I think the real moment is whether the people, we, the public, can come back on the stage as the force that shapes politics, that is politics. Okay, thank you very much. Um, thank you all, everyone.